I have one goal this morning, and that is to make much of Jesus. Um, you know, we can pour ourselves out into other people, and if all we're pouring out is ourselves, we really don't have much to give. But if we're pouring out what Christ has put into us, then we have the words of life. Um, I want to encourage you all to grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one on a pew somewhere in front of you. And um, I know sometimes we use digital Bibles on our phones, and I use that a lot too on my computer. Um, I will have some of these verses on the screen behind me. But I want to encourage you, not just today, but from here on out, would you humor me? Would you grab your Bible and bring it with you on Sunday mornings? Would you actually bring your actual copy? If you don't have one, let us know, and uh, I'll get you a copy. The reason being is we want to familiarize ourselves with this book because this book brings us life. This is the primary way you grow in your faith in Christ. Psalm 55.10 says, The word of God shall not return void. You read this, you pray about this, and I promise you God will begin to change you. There have been seasons in my life where the Bible has not been primary in my life, and guess what? It has always felt dry. And you are always searching for a well that you can never get enough from, and we have it sitting in front of us. So I'm encouraging you to grab your Bibles, bring them with you, Learn how to navigate them. It's like what Brian was saying earlier. And you can, and by the way, you can open up, open up to Luke chapter 9 this morning. We're going to start in verse 51. Brian was talking about Ash Wednesday, what he was talking about. And uh, a lot of the denominational churches had services for Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, and you would get an ash cross on your forehead and a blessing. And that was to remind you of your mortality. This isn't scriptural. Um, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a, a bad thing. It's a great reminder that we are mortal. And so you would see people with that ash on their forehead, and some of your instinct would be to you know, lick the thumb and go up and, and wipe it off. And don't do that. But it's a reminder to them and those around them that, that they stand for something. And I think sometimes just having this book in our hand taking it with us to the coffee shop, taking it with us to work, taking it with us where and whenever we can, this represents God speaking to us today. Because I can open my phone up, and I can be on the Bible, and I even have this cool case that looks like a book. And all you'll know that I'm doing is looking at Facebook. Oh, I see, some of you have checked in. Good job. So my encouragement is that this is what we stand upon. This speaks into our lives. And if I pour myself up with things on Netflix and things in conversation with people and I pour that out, all I have is nothing to give people. But if I am in this word and it's in me, then that's what I have to give people. So my encouragement to you is let's make this a priority in our lives. And I would love to see us bring these Bibles and open them up and read them together. This morning, we're going to look at quite a few passages in the scriptures. And there's a reason. Because I believe that this still is active 
and it's living, and it breathes life to us, and it speaks to us in ways that we need to hear, because sometimes what the scriptures teach us aren't things we want to hear. Like, if it were up to me, I would follow along with Thomas Jefferson, and I would rip out the pages that I disagreed with and leave only in there the things I want to know about God. But what, what we're going to find today is that even Jesus himself had some hard sayings. And we can't remove them. We have to wrestle with them. We have to be in tension, in tension with them. And ultimately, we have to submit to them. The other thing is, if I am saying something, or John, or Sean, or Alan, or any of your friends are preaching something, and it's not in the scriptures, you have a familiarity with them to say, hey, wait, I, I didn't see that. Where is that at? And I give everyone the right to come challenge me if I go off course. You see the beauty in that? Because we want to be about God. And so this morning we're starting a series called Faces of the Cross. What is Faces about the Cross? We are going to be looking for the next 10 weeks. People that were in the scriptures surrounding Jesus at the cross. Because Easter's only eight weeks away. Did you know that? It's going to be here before you know it. And as we not lead up, because this Sunday is every much as important as last Sunday and next week. But Easter is our Super Bowl, right? This is when we come together and we maybe sing a little louder than we normally do. We may even dress up in our pastel colors, bring our families with us. We celebrate. And let me tell you something, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday because if it ended in the tomb, we're all doomed. Paul said he came to preach Christ crucified, nothing else. Because nothing else really matters. So we're starting this series, and I get the privilege of talking about Jesus. And if you can walk out of here having a greater view, your heart stirred with affection, more in love with him and what he's done for you, then I feel like I will have done my job. Because it's all that we have. We have Jesus. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is how the, the, uh, the gospel writer Luke, Dr. Luke, who was one of my favorite people in the Bible, because we don't know much about him. He didn't give enough details about himself. He always referred to himself in the third person, we. Yet he was an amazing man who probably helped funded Paul's missionary journeys, who took on his own probably got some funding to record these orderly accounts for us and put them in order so that you and I could still have this news today. And when the Apostle Paul was left in prison in Rome and everyone had left him and deserted him, guess who was right by his side? Dr. Luke. And he stayed with Paul till the end. Tremendous example of a selfless follower of Jesus, which is what we're going to look at today. So Jesus, as we record and as Luke records, is this part of Scripture called the journey to Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jesus had been born, um, grown up, introduced himself, started his ministry, but it is at this point that most scholars agree that they call this the journey to Jerusalem because Jesus had a mission on his mind and nothing was going to come in his way. Do you ever face opposition in your life? right? You might have even faced opposition in getting here this morning. Man, it would be nice to sleep in. Although you're second service, so you got to sleep in, so. 
We are faced with opposition. And what we find is Jesus relates with us because so did he. And what we're going to learn is he was looking towards his mission. And what is his mission? Let's get into it. So Luke chapter 9, verse 51. says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his head to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, that it is as true today as it was when it was written. Lord, my prayer this morning is that these words would jump off these pages and penetrate into every deep corner of our hearts and change us and renew us and give us hope and stir our love for you this morning. Lord, teach us about your love for us through Christ and in so doing, teach us how to love others that way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that Jesus, as we read this, says, set his face toward Jerusalem. Because it was at this moment that all this was coming on him, and he had in his mind what he was intended to do. You see, when he was born into this world, his mission never changed. He was born to die. The birth of Jesus is a great thing, but without the cross, he would have been left in the tomb, and you and I would be in trouble. And Jesus' life was not without opposition. Let me walk through a few of the ways that his life was faced with opposition and rejection. He was born in rather unusual circumstances. And had the rumor got out, they would have looked on that family with shame. After he was born, King Herod, worried about this new Messiah that was the Savior that was supposed to rise up, He had put an edict out, right, to kill all those boys two and under. And so what did Mary and Joseph do? They had to flee their house, and they went to Egypt. When Jesus is grown and he comes into the ministry, he comes into the synagogue and he opens up to Isaiah and he reads the scroll about himself and he drops it. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you know what immediately happened? The religious leaders plotted to kill him. He would heal people on the Sabbath. He would bring all those who were weary and needed something from him. Not just healing, he would give them hope. He would teach them lessons. He would feed them. And when that left, when they were left with nothing, they left him. Satan himself, after he comes to John in the wilderness to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, the Spirit moves him out into the desert to tempt him for 40 days. 
without food. Satan himself, you want to see the importance of knowing Scripture? Satan himself, in his temptation, uses Scripture and he twists it. And Jesus always responded with the Word of God. Demons know who he was. Legion filled with thousands of demons when Jesus comes on the scene says, I know who you are. You're the Son of the Most High God. James 2.19 reminds us that even demons know who he is and they shudder. His life was filled with opposition as he's with his boys and friends that are supporting him in ministry. As he's on this journey to Jerusalem, nothing was going to remove his eyes from the cross. Even that moment of desperation in the garden when he says, Father, if, the, if it's your will, take this cup from me, knowing what was going to happen. And he says, not my will, but what? Your will be done. He was deserted and abandoned. All his best friends in his biggest moment of need were nowhere to be found. In that moment on the cross, where he bore the wrath of God for our sins, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, if that doesn't stir our hearts for the love of God for us, I don't know what does. That he made this great exchange between he and ourselves. And what we find in the scripture is he saw the cross and he knew that was his destiny. That was the will of the Father. I want to flip over to Isaiah. Chapter 50, verse 7 says this, and this was prophesied years, hundreds of years before Jesus. It says, but the Lord God helps me. This is the suffering servant. Isaiah is often known as the fifth gospel. If you read through this book, you see beautiful pictures foretelling of Jesus' coming. And not only is coming, many, many details. And Isaiah 57 says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Very reminiscent of Jesus' very own words. He set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Now, I've got four boys. And I kick them out of the house quite often to go play out in the woods. And uh, they have good grandparents in their lives that spend time with them. And one of their grand-grandma and grandpas has, uh, they live on a farm. And the farmer around them will disc the ground. And you know, I have searched my whole life. I've been in every creek and river in Franklin County searching for these little things made of flint, these arrowheads, never finding one. I remember bringing some home and like thinking, oh, this is it, and I was, my, my uh, hopes were dashed when, no, that's not, just, just, that's just a rock. And my boys will go with their grandpa and they will walk through the field after it's been disc and they actually still to this day find these arrowheads. And they're incredible because they're, years and years old and we look at them and we we see what what artistry and what you know determination it may, it took to make this piece of rock in the shape that it was hard enough to pierce skin and you can also take flint right and you can use it and you can strike a rock against it and it makes a spark and you can start a fire 
You see, we get this picture when, when Isaiah says he set his face like flint, and Jesus says he set his, his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined to not let anything stand in his way of fulfilling his mission. Nothing was going to get in his way, not even one of his best friends. What do, you, what do I mean? I've, if we look over in Luke chapter uh, 16. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is there with the disciples. And Jesus starts unfolding for them the plan for his life. And he had done this many times, and oftentimes they didn't understand. But in Matthew chapter 16, we read about this encounter of good old Peter. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised, now, here's where our good old friend Peter comes in. It says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to even was rebuking Jesus. And he says, Far be it from, from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Let's hit the pause button there. I love Peter's zeal. He loves Jesus. He's willing to fight for Jesus. He's willing to pull the sword out and defend him at all costs. But I want to jump back to the, to the previous section in Matthew chapter 16. I want us to get a different picture of Peter because this happens on the heels of an extraordinary event. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, don't miss this. This is a huge question. Who do people say that I am? The Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Like all of life comes down to this one question. All of our lives come down to this one question. Who do you say that he is? Some people think he was just um, a revolutionary martyr. And that he lived and he fought and he died. Some people would suggest that he actually didn't actually live, that there's no historical evidence, which there is. In fact, there, is an, there are some atheist scholars who believe that he exists and that he even resurrected. Some people think that Jesus, and he is loving, is only love. And he's very grace-filled. But if the Jesus that we think in our minds and believe in our hearts is not the Jesus that lines up with Scripture, we're following a different Jesus. And it's important that we know who Jesus is. And so I ask you, who do you say that he is? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of all? 
or he's the Lord of some. And he asked Peter this question. He looks at Peter, and all these people are saying all these things, and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And here's Peter's response. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one we've been hoping for and longing for and looking for. You are the one. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and he says, and I tell you, Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, this is on right before Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to be turned over, and I'm going to be killed and raised again. And Peter says, after he confessed Jesus as Christ, and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon you. And I left out this part. After Peter says, far be it from me, Lord, that this shall never happen to you, you know what Jesus said? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch. This is his best friend. This is his buddy. And he just confessed him as the anointed one. And in a moment, Jesus is calling him Satan. You ever call your friends the devil? You might have thought that a time or two, haven't you? Um, Just on a side note, husbands, don't ever say that to your wife. Get behind me, Satan. Do you see this interesting dynamic here? Peter confesses him on Christ, and in the next moment, because Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and his mission, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're the devil. Your things aren't on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so often, you and I do this. Even our intentions can be good, but our eyes are focused on the horizontal and not the vertical. We get consumed with things in our lives and we don't center our lives on Jesus. Even Jesus' best friend was not going to get in the way of his saving mission. So what is his saving mission? Mark chapter 10. Jesus tells us You see, the disciples were arguing and wanted to know that who's going to be the greatest among them and and who was going to get to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in power. I mean, we look at our lives as dysfunctional sometimes. Man, these guys were a mess. And Jesus just loved them so well, didn't he? So patient and kind. And generous. He rebuked them when he had to. He loved them when he had to. He brought them along. He understood. And so they're fighting to know who, Jesus, among us will be on your left and your right. Who's going to have the power? And Jesus says, it's not for me to know. But he says this to him. 
In verse 42, he says, And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. There is a fight for power in this world that we live, even among Christianity. Isn't it amazing that God has preserved not only his word, which is reliable and true, it blows like John had talked a couple of months ago, it blows all these other historical documents out of the water, not even close. And through all of man's endeavors through the building of the church and the different forms of the church and the different versions of the Bible, God has still preserved his word and his church today. Only God can do that. Like we try to mess it up and he still preserves it. And we fight for power and authority. We want to climb that ladder. But Jesus isn't like that. Listen, here's what he says. Verse 43, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus considers those who are great are the ones that serve. The great ones are the servants. He says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't have a Savior that simply sits on his throne and tells us what to do. We have a Savior that entered into his creation submitted himself to his father and became servant of all. This is mind-blowing because it empowers you and I. We are learning to be like Christ and to learn to be like Christ means I lay down my rights. That's hard to do. Right? Can I get an amen? Like, if I would reveal to you the things in my heart, the, the idols that so, so easily get put on the throne of my heart, one of them's pride. You may not see that often, but have a conversation with my wife. Right? Like, sometimes you get, in, you get into an argument and you just want to win it, even though you know you're wrong. Why? Because I want authority. I want to be right. My pride is the king of my heart. And then the spirit comes in and he convicts you and you know you're wrong and you have to come back and you have to say, I am sorry. I was wrong. Those are hard words to say, aren't they? I sinned, I messed up, and I offended you and God. You see, a follower of Christ doesn't do that perfectly, but they are willing to do that. They're willing to lay down their rights. There are things I do for my kids that if I wanted to be selfish, I would just exclude them. Right? I wouldn't have to go to 
practices throughout the week. We have to get up early and get them breakfast. Gosh, they're so needy. But as I serve them, as I do the dishes in the house, as I help clean up after dinner, help them go to bed and tuck them in, like I'm serving them as Christ served us. I don't do that because I'm good. <laughs> I do that because God's good. We lay down our rice. Jesus did this for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. And his mission was to give his life, life as a ransom. You see, the blood on the cross, which was his destination, which was his mission, to accomplish what only he could accomplish. You see, you and I could be crucified for our sins, and we don't get the benefit of the cross. But Jesus took it upon himself being righteous and holy and without sin. He took that upon himself. He ransomed his life for our lives. He took the sin that was in our lives and he put it upon himself. And guess what we get? We get his sinless righteousness. Like, you get that. He's imputed that. He's credited it to your life. Like, he see, when God sees you in Christ, he sees Jesus, not you. You know what that does? You know what the freedom that brings? It means you don't have to try and please God. But it's because God is pleased in Jesus, you live for him. You lay down your rights. You serve him because your life, just like Christ, will be faced with opposition and rejection. I have talked to people who did not grow up in a Christian church, but in another form of Christianity. And when they start coming to a church like this and they hear the word preached and they say, I never knew that, Jesus. And they put their faith and trust in him as their savior and they go back to their family. Their family says, you can't be a part of our family anymore. Like, that still happens today. Sure, you would go over to Africa in a Muslim nation or go to Korea or China, and you would be persecuted for having one paragraph of one book in this Bible. May even be thrown in jail. May even cost your life. But opposition exists in the heart of every believer. You know, one of the biggest oppositions I think we face is picking this up each day and reading it. Let me check Twitter. <laughs> See how many likes I got on Instagram. Let me watch endless YouTube videos. Let me watch hours and hours of shows. Let me work on my lawn for hours and hours. And we have the words of life at our fingertips. Opposition exists, it just exists differently. I knew uh, of a couple pastors who were determined to go on the mission field to die for the gospel. Their motivation was slightly off. You and I will probably never have to face that line in the sand deny your Christ and live or confess him and die. But I also think it's more dangerous. You go to another country heavily persecuted, that is life. God is life. 
you and I don't need them. We don't need them. We can go to work, we can get a paycheck, pay most of our bills. We can busy our life up with things. We don't have to worry about what food we're going to eat tomorrow. If we'll have a drink of water. We don't need them. And that's dangerous. Because we absolutely need them. And so we empathize with Jesus. We can follow along and we can find hope for one, that he completed that work. He did it. And then two, it empowers us to lay down our rights to follow him. Jesus was determined to get to the cross by any means necessary, and nothing was going to take away that mission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, verse B. When you read scripture, even if you read a verse or a paragraph, a chunk, when you read it, you have to look for the promises of God because they exist all throughout it. And we have to be reminded of God's promises for his people, for you. See, our motivation for serving God is not because we earn his favor, it's because Jesus has already earned it. And so out of that love and affection, we do it. In Matthew 20, 28, verse 20, says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a promise that he is faithful to fulfill. He's with you. He lives inside of you. He won't leave you or forsake you. You matter to him. You are important to him. He loves you. He put his son on the cross for you. What love do we have in Jesus? One of my prayers for my life, my own life, for my family, for this church, is that we would make so much of Jesus, that we would talk about Jesus all the time, that people would think we're weird. Like, why do you always talk about him? And I know we've got some work to do, don't we? We're so used to talking about life and work, activities. Not that those things aren't important, but man, if I have anything to talk about, it's how good God is by sending Jesus. Like you have the joy of Christ living inside of you. The church should be a celebration of what God's done regardless of our circumstances because you are saved and you're sanctified. You get a, you get a life with Christ that, that many people don't. You have a purpose. You have a name. We see, we look at our lives as, we don't look at eternal, the eternality of it. We look at the temporal nature of our lives. This moment here matters. But there's a bigger portion of life than just this moment. You know, we don't like suffering, do we? We have created a culture in our nation, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that screams comfort. 
But it's not just this country. Since the creation of man, we've been trying to find ways to add comfort to our lives. That's when, when sin entered the world and thorns be, became in the, 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 with the fruit, and you're grabbing the fruit and you're, you're, you're like, okay, we need to make hybrids where there's no thorns so we can get the fruit. You see, we are creatures of comfort. We pursue that at all costs, including suffering. Can I let you in on a little secret in my life? My suffering pales in comparison to many. But I've, I know over the last four or five years of my life, the things that I've had to walk through that have been difficult, challenging. Tears that have been cried, prayers that have been prayed at a loud rate in my car, pleading and not really seeing relief. Suffering. That's when I'm closest with Christ. Maybe our prayer should be, Lord, remove whatever in my life. You need to remove at whatever cost if it means I can love, know your love for me greater. Like I read these scriptures and I see stories in here and as I've matured and gotten older, I used to think that I would always choose Jesus. The rich young ruler, this young man, he had all the religious answers, and he checked all the boxes. He passed the test, and Jesus looked into his heart. This has nothing to do about money. It has everything to do about the nature of this man's heart. You see, Jesus wants your heart, and this man couldn't give it to him. He says, tell you what, you're missing one thing. Sell everything you have and come follow me. And he turned and walked away. Mark's version I love, it says Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him and he turned and he walked away sad because he couldn't let go of something that was more valuable to him than Jesus. And I think if we're honest, that's probably you and I. Right? I've been reading through Job with my wife. He was stripped of everything. Man, I'm going to turn my back on God. Suffering, I have found, is one of the greatest ways God makes us dependent on him and grows us in our faith. It's like that flint. To shape that flint, you're knocking off hard edges. It's what Proverbs 27:17 says. So one man sharpens another. Right? Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. Do you know why we're, we're pushing community groups? Not so you can have this fun little click. We should enjoy one another. We should care for one another. That is a great thing. We have two reasons for these groups. To help those who love Jesus love him more, and for those who don't know him begin to love him. These groups are going to be going through stories of Jesus in the Bible and you're going to learn how to retell them so you can share them and learn what God's teaching you and you can take these and you can share them with people. We want to equip you to share the love of Christ with others and we get the benefit of it. In Luke 14, Jesus is talking about the cost of following him. I don't think we always count the cost. 
when it comes to following Christ. We want to say, I, I accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. I know that I'm a sinner and that you've saved me. Now make my life good. Make it easy. And I have found the Christian life is anything but easy. It is a constant pursuit. And Jesus is sharing this story with the disciples. And he's saying, you know, imagine a guy who wants to build a house. And he has to count the cost before he starts building the house to make sure he has all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Because if he doesn't, he goes and he starts to build the foundation and he runs out of money and he's got the foundation. I remember being in Mexico on a mission trip and seeing a house like that. That when they got the next extra money, they went and bought the next load of materials. And he says, your neighbors will walk by and call you foolish because you didn't count the cost. These are the hard sayings of Jesus. He has many of these hard sayings. If you read through the scriptures, you will, you will find tension in here. You have to reconcile some of these things. And sometimes you just have to say, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but this is what it says. You see, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, that means you lay down your rights. It means you serve me and me alone. It says, if you don't hate your mother or father or brothers or sisters, even your very life, you can have no part of me. Did you hear that? Jesus said, we're supposed to love our enemies. How come he just said, you got to hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters, even your very life, because it's so easy to put something else on the throne where he rightly deserves to be. There's a passage. It says, this light momentary affliction. You see, our lives are going to be filled with suffering, but everything is designed to push us and point us, to strip us of all that we are, to put Christ in the center of our hearts. And God will do that if you let him. You see, when we read this light momentary affliction, we think momentary, we think, okay, maybe it'll end today. Perhaps it'll end this week. And perhaps it'll end maybe this month. And at best, maybe it's, it lasts a year. But what if this scripture actually is talking about, compared to eternity, this life is only but a moment. Is he worth following? Is he worth sacrificing? Is he worth giving up our rights to be a servant to those around us so that his name can be known and people can love Jesus so that you can love him more? So you can sit and rest in his love for you. Jesus was determined for the cross to save you and now he empowers his people to love him greater, to love him more, to, to remove things in our lives so that others can know him as well. What a good God we have. You know what? He, he's faithful. Many of you are represent, representations of his faithfulness. I know there was great fear this church might not make it. Isn't God good? Isn't he faithful? And his faithfulness doesn't depend on your faithfulness. May we make much of Jesus.
in our lives. May we come in this place and worship him. May we take this worship with us as we leave. May we see our friends, neighbors, coworkers as people that God cares about. May we pray for them, invest in their lives, and invite them. Pi squared. May we take these words and not just punch it in and punch it out one hour on a Sunday, but take these very words and let them transform our hearts so we see the world and we serve the world. I believe Franklin County can be changed for Christ. I believe that. And maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. But I've seen God do amazing things that no one would believe. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to continue to worship. I want you to know I don't want to put any burdens on your life. I think the grace of God is so powerful and transforming it moves us. We serve our children's ministry. They need your help. There are 744 hours in the month of March, starting today. Actually, we've already used some of them. You know, our chance to respond to the love of Christ through his word is a response for all of us. We should be responding to what we've just heard. I am still trying to respond. I'm going to go home and be like, and I'm going to crash eventually, and I'm going to wake up and, and try to figure out, how do I take this with me? Lord, what changes in my life do you need? And I've got a lot of those changes. Maybe you could respond by saying, I'm going to give one hour this month to help the children's ministry. You know, the disciples tried to shoo those, those kids away. And Jesus says, how dare you? <laughs> the kingdom belongs to such as these. I see one of my sons who's little, and he stands in front of the cross with his hands behind his back, and he just stares at the cross. His favorite story in the Bible is Jesus dying on the cross. I treasure that. These children are treasures. You're a treasure. Your neighbor's a treasure. I would love to see the joy of Christ fill our lives, that even despite our circumstances, he's glorified in our lives. There's, there's a saltiness about you. There's a seasoning about you. There's a light about your life. Not because of what you can do, because what if he's what he's done. For that people that we would invite to come to this building would see people that love Jesus. That they would come in and be loved on. Man. How will you respond to the love of Christ today? Let's not lose this moment. Let's not lose this moment. Man, God is so good. Let me pray, and we're going to worship, and then we'll finish our time together. But let's not let our worship stop here.